Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today on the podcast, our guest is another presidential candidate, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington. Inslee has made climate change the focus of his campaign, but he's he talks about a lot of other things, too, because, frankly, Washington State is far ahead of California in a lot of different measures. We'll talk to him about it. Actually, we won't. The big man, John Wildermuth, is our guest host for today's podcast. Next, Jay Inslee with The Big Man on It's All Political. This is John Wildermuth sitting in for Joe Garofoli on It's All Political. And our guest today is Washington Governor Jay Inslee, a candidate for president, one of many. And we're going to start right out, Governor, with the obvious question. Why are you running for president? Uh, well, that is a very good question. I appreciate you asking it. And uh, it has a simple answer. I've been a two-term governor of Washington State, had a lot of success, or got the best economy in the country, have done some really good progressive things. But several months ago, uh, uh, my wife and I were talking about this uh, potential decision. And I just decided that on my last day on earth, I wanted to be able to look at my three grandkids and say, I did everything humanly possible for you to prevent you from being swallowed whole by the climate crisis. And so I'm running for president because I firmly believe that defeating the climate crisis has to be the number one priority of the United States. And fundamentally, that's why I'm running. Now, there's a lot of other things in my portfolio to talk about, but I do believe that our very survival as a civilization in a way that we recognize it is dependent on our ability to choose a president that will make this a priority and has a plan to get that job done. So that's why I'm here this morning. Just about everybody out there, and there's, as we know, plenty of people out there who want to be president, say, well, climate's really important. There's a Green New Deal and all sorts of stuff. What, why you? What do you bring to this race that the other candidates don't? Well, look, there's a lot of talent in the field. I know a lot of the candidates. I've already selected four or five potential vice presidents, so you know it might work out just fine in the long run. But, but seriously, uh, I think that the moment demands uh, a president with certain uh, qualities and, and vision statements. Uh, number one, someone who will make defeating the climate crisis and building a clean energy economy the number one priority. And the reason is, is uh, I was in Congress for 16 years, and I understand this. If it is not job one, it simply will not get done. So the very first uh, job of governing is to choose. To govern is to choose. And I think we have to realize that this uh, emergency is so vital to our survival as a country that it has to be the top priority. That's number one. And so far, I'm the only candidate who has made a pledge to make this the top priority, to do what is necessary. Secondly, uh, uh, if you look at our vision statements, mine is unique. It has been called the gold standard by Representative Ocasio-Cortez. It's been given A's and top ratings by Greenpeace and the SEAL uh, awards and data for progress. Virtually everyone who has evaluated the climate proposals of the candidates have reached the same conclusion, which is that mine is top ranked. And the reason is, is because it does the things that are necessary to get this job done. And frankly, the other candidates, I think, fall short in this regard. Look, we have to transition off of coal in 10 years. This is simply a scientific reality. We have to transition off of fossil fuel in the next decade and a half. 
and mine is the only plan that has a has a, a system to actually guarantee that we will accomplish th- those goals. So what I would say about my vision is is it's based on science. Science has dictated our timelines, and science is something we need to follow. And the third is that I think I'm unique is recognizing the economic potential of this clean energy revolution. And this is something I've had a conviction for a long time. Uh, I was here in San Francisco 12 years ago uh, after I wrote a book about the clean energy economy, a vision statement of of how to build a clean energy economy and how to put people to work doing it. So uh, then I went and uh, helped found the U.S. Climate Alliance with Governor Brown, who did fantastic work on this subject. So this has been a long-time passion and commitment of mine, and I think I've made the right prioritization with the right timelines, with the right optimistic view that this is an economic success story if we'll just uh, accept it. So I think I'm unique in the field. Let's dig a little deeper into the uh, environmental question there. Uh, One thing I guess it's fair to say that while you say this stuff is really important, you're not necessarily saying it's going to be really easy. Uh, There are a lot of changes, a lot of changes that would have to be made to the country uh, in the way things are operating now. Tell me, how do we go, what actually needs to be done, and how do we go about doing it? Well, uh, this is a a change. It is a big change, but we have managed changes before in the United States. We've been very successful at managing change. This is why our economy is so vital. We've had a change from the horse to the steam-powered engine. We've had a change from coal-based steam to to fossil fuel-based transportation systems. This is just another metamorphosis that we need to go through. We need to find a way for our transportation system not to be powered by oil and gas because that is incompatible with the sort of life as we know it uh, because it's causing a climate change. Uh, We know we have to uh, decarbonize our electrical grid so that we power our electricity with things other than coal and natural gas. We know that we have to make our buildings much more energy efficient so we don't waste so much energy. How do we go about doing this, however? It's it's one thing to come and write nice plans and say, right. we're going to make this transition in 10 years. But, mm-hmm. you know, getting uh, getting gas-powered automobiles and trucks off the uh, off the road in 15 years, moving from the, uh, the fossil fuel-based and uh, some of this other stuff, it's how do you get actually do the physical thing, make that physical changeover without, you know, making a real problem with the economy. So we have the technology. All we need is the will to, to actually do this. And this is what should be actually encouraging to us as a nation. We know we have electric cars because we have them today. I'm driving an electric car with over 200 miles of range. It's built by UAW union members in Michigan. We have over 30% of the electricity in Iowa today comes from wind turbines. Uh, solar is now growing uh, at an incredible pace, in part because the prices come down at 80%. What we lack so far is leadership to simply adopt the requirements that we do these things. So what in my plan, it's over 100 pages, and I welcome people to look at it, jansley.com. Uh, it's the gold standard because it uses the regulatory authority of the United States in the ways that we need to work. So my plan basically says we need a federal law uh, that simply says we are not going to be using coal in our utility system uh, 10 years from now. And that is a manageable, legally defensible, and constitutionally allowed thing to do. It is exactly what we have done in so many other measures in the past. Look, uh, when I was in college, I went to the University of Washington, and... uh, 
you couldn't see Mount Rainier in, 19, in the ni- early 1970s because of the smog. And Uncle Sam said, look, we'd like to breathe some clean air. And it passed a rule that says we're going to have cars with catalytic converters. And the auto industry said, oh, no, we can't do that. It'll bankrupt America. Cars will cost $400,000 or whatever. And we did it. And within years, you can see Mount Rainier because the industry responded. We just simply have to do the things like that that we have done so many times before that have been successful. And I think if you look at our environmental record in this country, we've been supremely successful when we actually have acted. We simply need to act. Now, the reason this is tenable is that it's happening today. This transition is happening today. You're seeing it. Uh, You know, I had a lunch with a guy who has a company called Pick Me Solar, who's an entrepreneur doing really well here in California. Three days ago, I was at the inauguration of the largest solar manufacturer of solar cells in North America, in Bellingham, Washington. Today, clean energy jobs are growing twice as fast as the U.S. economy. So this transition is taking place. We just need to accelerate it. And the reason we need to accelerate it is that the science tells us that we have to do the things that my plan calls for or our goose is cooked. And we know the, the wages of that failure of leadership. When I was in Paradise, California, uh, seeing those houses burn down and Agora Hills talking to Marsha Moss, watching her cry about the loss of her mobile home that's now a puddle of aluminum. When I talked to the farmers in Iowa that can't plant because of the flooding and the people in Miami who are losing their homes because they're being inundated, I think it's time for, for leadership. And we need to have somebody who won't be timid about this, who actually will confront the fossil fuel industry. And frankly, my plan is the only one that does that. Uh, You have to be able to look the CEOs in the eye and say you need to stand down. We need to make this transition. And I have demonstrated that time and time again of willingness to do that. In the past, the transitions that we've made, though, have basically come from uh, down up. I mean, people decided the cars were better because they were better than horses and everything like that. Uh, Let's move from kerosene to electricity and everything. It was the ground up. People made those decisions, and they happened over years. Mm -hmm. This would be top down. This would be the government saying, you have to do this. That car you have in your driveway has got to be gone by this time, and you will buy an electric car and not have a car at all. How do you deal with that? Well, deal with people getting mad about that? First off, it's it's bottom up. It's not top down. It's it's the democratic process and work of electing officials. But isn't it the government telling you this is what you have to do? It's the government doing what it has successfully done when it said we want cleaner cars and we want less smokestack and we want less poisons coming out of industry. And this has been very successful when we have done it. Uh, And so that's what we need is to jumpstart. Now, let me suggest that that by the tone of your voice, you suggest that all governmental action is evil. I disagree with that fundamentally. And let me tell you why. Uh, uh, you know, I'm old enough to remember when John F. Kennedy said, we're going to go to the moon and bring a man back safely in 10 years. And he, he organized the United States government around that principle, and we went. And by the way, he didn't say we're going halfway to the moon. He said we're going all the way to the moon. And that's what we need to do today. We know that we can mobilize the industrial might of the United States around a unified purpose. And people who say we can't do that, I really think sell America short. Yeah. And here's just one little factoid to chew on. In 1940, we made exactly 70 Jeeps. So the whole auto industry of the United States made 70 Jeeps. Uncle Sam then got involved and said, we have another national crisis that we have to respond to. By 1945, we had made 645,000 Jeeps. That's the type of transition we're capable of making. 
And no, we're not going to yank people's cars out of their driveways. But what we are going to do is to say, starting 10 years from now, we need the industry to produce electric cars. When we asked the industry to make Jeeps, they did it. And when we ask the industry to make the electric cars, they're going to do it, in part because they're doing it today. And we now have 50,000 electric cars on the road in my state and going very, very rapidly. So these are transitions we are capable of making. We ought to have confidence in our ability to do it. We simply need leadership to get this job done. In the past, uh, governors have had a pretty good track record running for uh, president. Uh, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton. Uh, this time, however, the, th- the three of you that are governors haven't gotten much traction. Uh, why do you see that? I mean, it's you, Steve Bullock of uh, Montana, and uh, John Hickenlooper, the former governor of Colorado. So what's, what's the problem? What's changed? Well, I think, uh, uh, first off, it's still early in the process. I know it doesn't seem like that to you, but uh, those governors are pretty much where uh, Jimmy Carter and Bill Clinton were at this stage of the proceeding because they did not have national profiles, but Carter and Clinton did okay, and I'm not saying I have the same capabilities of either of those, of those presidents. But we, governors do not start with national profiles. We're still introducing ourselves uh, to, the, uh, to the country. Uh, what has changed a little bit is the media, because the media has become much more centralized around Washington, D.C., and there's a lot less local coverage, and I bemoan that, frankly. We've had a reduction in the Newspaper coverage, even in my state, probably it's 30% what it used to be. So that has changed. And the senators have some advantages because they have $10 million in their account on day one. When they start, they stockpile the money while they're waiting to run for president. So we start uh, 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 in a place that we, we need to climb faster, and we're, we're in part of that climb. And what I'm finding is, is that the more people who hear about this central message that I have – but also hear about the experience that I've had uh, helping create the best economy in the United States. We're growing. We had a great uh, meeting in Pacific Palisades yesterday. We're having a meeting today, and so we're growing. What do governors offer that a, a senator may, might not? Well, I think leadership can come from any particular uh, you know, source of, 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 of experience. But having been a state legislator and a member of Congress for about 20 years— I can tell you that uh, I'm one hell of a lot better potential president uh, today than I was six years ago when I had not served as a chief executive. So I have learned, like you do in any job, art of uh, uh, making priority decisions and figuring out how to work with the legislature and figuring out how to uh, do good vetting decisions to run an organization. We've been very proud of the lean management systems that I've embedded that have helped our government function uh, more more freely. And I have simply had a record of, frankly, tremendous success around progressive values. Uh, I'm proud that we, under my leadership, now have the, the highest minimum wage in the United States. We have passed the single most robust family and medical leave policies in the United States. I'm proud that this year I helped fight for and win the largest educator pay raise in the United States. As a son of a biology teacher, I feel strongly about that. We're radical in Washington. We believe women should be paid the same as men. So we've now passed the best gender pay equity in the United States. We need universal coverage, so we've taken a big step in health care by passing the very first public option in the United States. And I've signed the first, very first net neutrality bill, which is so important to freedom on the Internet. 
So as an executive, I have a portfolio of success that I think people might find of interest when they decide who they want to lead this country. So uh, climate change is a priority, but my experience is a value. Now, you have a very interesting history as far as uh, service in Congress goes. You served uh, a number of years in Congress, but from two separate districts, two very, very different districts. Uh, your first time out, I believe it was in the Yakima area, mm-hmm. which is a pretty rural area and pretty much ag-based out there, I think. And yeah. I- then more recently, you were up in the in and around Seattle and its suburbs, uh, which is about as urban as uh, Washington State gets. Mm-hmm. How do you... Much of what we've been doing in the country is trying to reconcile the urban areas with the rural areas. What are the differences, and how do you do that reconciliation? How did you find it? Well, I've had success as a governor doing that, um, even in a bipartisan <clears throat> basis. Uh, I had a Republican Senate the first four years, and even with that sometimes obstacle, uh, we were able to pass uh, the biggest transportation infrastructure bill in our probably in our state's history. They can't build a birdhouse in D.C. <laughs> we passed one of the largest educational uh, packages of billions of dollars of new money, including for, for special education and the like. And we passed, uh, in, even with the Republican Senate, I got through the best paid family and medical leave act in the United States. So I have been able to achieve real success, even with a Republican Senate. But you also have to be, you look at, you got to be true to your convictions. And when I represented a Republican district, a very small town in eastern Washington, uh, one of the, the moments I remember is when the assault weapon bill came up to ban assault weapons. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I voted for the assault weapon ban, I would be losing my congressional seat. But I voted to ban assault weapons, and I did lose my seat, but I have never regretted that vote for a heartbeat. It was the right vote then. It's the right vote now. And now as governor, uh, we have the NRI on the run. We've now passed uh, three major common sense gun safety legislation, some by initiative, and I intend to have the NRA in the run nationally. So I think uh, I've demonstrated the ability to work across the aisle when possible and necessary, but I've also shown a little spine having stood up against the Iraq war and Glass-Steagall repeal but, and a whole bunch but of- But not even talking about the, uh, the partisan, uh, partisan divide. There's that rural-urban divide with people having very different interests in a, lar- in a number of respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, housing and things like that, there's much more concern about those in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, uh, many people in urban areas, I've found, uh, believe that uh, all their food comes from produce aisle the Safeway. And that's very different from the way people in the agriculture areas feel. How do you, how do you uh, bridge that divide, which is seen throughout the country? Well, I think it's by meeting people where they live and understanding their lives. And I think you described my my career is interesting. That's what my, the adjective we use in our family, meaning pathetic. And I, I don't know if that's what you meant or not, but, but I have had an experience that I think uniquely uh, allows me to understand a lot of folks. Uh, I'm, I think I'm the only, might be the only one who, who's grown alfalfa. I lived in eastern Washington, and I represented an agricultural-based industry. And so I've been very um, knowledgeable and adept at working on agriculture. You know all about apple juice, right? Knew about apple juice. I lived in the best apple-growing country in, in, in the world, actually. So having sort of represented a small town, I always kind of joke is that Red Oak, Iowa, when I go there and campaign, it, it just feels like I'm home in Selah, Washington. It's very similar. So knowing the agricultural side of our state, knowing those issues, having fought to get apples into Japan through a trade barrier— 
having to pass the Yakima River Enhancement Bill, which was a major bill to help irrigation and fish habitat as a freshman congressman. Those things suit me to understand uh, multiple tech, multiple industries, and I think that uh, will serve well in the White House potentially. Next week, you're on stage uh, with the the rest of the uh, Democratic uh, primary crew, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a chance for uh, to get nationally known to let people see you, to let people hear you. What message do you want to put out during that debate, if with your minute or five minutes or ten minutes of time? Well, one of the things that I think uh, it is very important for my party, not just my candidacy, is to fulfill our responsibility as the last and best hope of mankind. And I really believe that. We've had one more chance to to tackle climate change, and that's the next administration. And the only hope for the world at this point is the Democratic Party to nominate a candidate who really has the commitment and the chops and the experience and the vision to fulfill that that requirement. So I, uh, I've been very dissatisfied so far in the first debate. We had just a few minutes out of two hours to talk about what is the existential crisis for the United States. So I will be centrally focused to make sure that we talk about that issue. Uh, and I do believe that uh, I have a unique vision and prioritization. And, and uh, I think the other candidates ought to be called up to answer what they're proposing to do or not proposing to do. So certainly I hope that that is a major discussion. But all of the issues I'll be happy to talk about, including my record on immigration as the first governor to stand up against the Muslim ban. And I'm proud of that record because we believe in diversity in my state as a a candidate who's advanced health care reform in my state, as a candidate who has stood up against powerful interests, be it uh, the banking industry when I voted against the repeal of Glass-Steagall or George Bush when I voted against the Iraq War or the NRA. And those are things that uh, I'm happy to, to talk about. The elephant in the room, though, for you and uh, some of the other lesser-known candidates is that this could be your last chance to be in the debate. Uh, in the uh, Real, Real Clear Politics uh, poll of polls, last I checked, you were at about four-tenths of a percent. And uh, it needs to get, you need to get to 2% to uh, make that next debate in September. Are you going to do that? Is there a point where you're going to say, I can't do this anymore. It's not going to happen. I have to think of something else. We're planning for success. And by the way, since you've brought this subject uh, up, but not only being at 2%, but all the candidates have to have 130,000 individual donors by the end of August. And I want to uh, preserve everyone's free speech rights to go to jamesley.com and send a dollar to make sure that I have 130,000 donors. And I'm serious about that. If people agree with what I'm talking about today and they want to see climate change on the debate stage, I would welcome them going to jansley.com and helping out to some degree. So uh, we're looking forward. We're looking upward. I've always started as an underdog and beat Republicans. I'd look forward to it again. Governor, thank you for your time. Thank we you. appreciate your showing. You bet. This is John Wildermuth, and uh, it's all political, and uh, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks to Governor Jay Inslee of Washington for coming in and talking about what he'd do as president. And thank you all for listening to It's All Political. It's All Political is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. 
You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks. <laughs>